Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Father, I ask for your help now for all of us as we attempt to understand and experience these words. Holy Spirit, in your great mercy and holiness, would you come and enable me to speak the truth that you have called me to speak today in the power that is not my own, but which is given for the good of your people and the conversion of the lost. And so draw near to give hearts, Lord, who will hear and listen, believe, and be changed. Lord, make this a transaction that is supernatural and divine. Exalt yourself, Christ, right now, in these next few minutes, I pray. And may it be true of Bethlehem that there is neither Greek nor Jew nor uncircumcised or circumcised nor barbarian or Scythian or slave or free or black or white or red or brown or educated or uneducated or labor or management, but that Christ would be all and in all. I ask this for the glory of your name in this city and around the world in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. One of the reasons that I think some of us have a hard time making a connection between our faith and issues like racism and justice is because of a superficial understanding of conversion. I think if you get conversion wrong, that is, what what happens when a person becomes a Christian? If you get that wrong, all the subsequent things that ought to work don't work. Let me illustrate by the way Paul answered a distortion that was being made of his gospel. Somewhere along the way, in Paul's life, as he was preaching the gospel of grace and faith, it began to be said among some people, oh, well, if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, then let us sin, that grace may abound and God will get more glory 
because as he manifests more grace, then the glory of his great heart of beneficence is magnified in the world. So let us sin that grace may abound. Now that's a real objection and a real distortion that Paul dealt with. Now the answer that he gave to it in Romans 6, 2 is devastating to the superficial views of conversion that are so common today. Here's what he said. You remember this? He said, shall we sin that grace may abound? And here's his answer. Shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, what kind of an answer is that? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying conversion to Christ means death. And if you didn't die with him, you're not converted. He's writing to a group of people in Rome he'd never met. And he simply says to them, don't you know this? How can we who died, that is, you are Christians, aren't you? Christians are people who've died. How can those who've died to sin still live in it? And the answer is they can't. And so when I read that, it takes my breath away at the way some evangelism is done today and the way some church growth specialists water down the front end gospel to try to get people to call themselves Christians. And no wonder then that those people who have begun to call themselves Christians because of some non-death experience in their life can't relate it to the rest of what the Bible says they're supposed to be. And do. It's a pretty shocking way to talk about conversion. What should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How can you who died to racism still live in it? How can you who died to unkindness and cruelty and malice still live in it? How can you who have died to mean-spiritedness and injustice and ugliness and hard-heartedness and bitterness and hostility and anger, how can you still live in it if you've died to it? Conversion means death in Paul's understanding of becoming a Christian. And one of the great problems in the church today, the church of Jesus Christ, is that we have watered down conversion to decisions for Christ without a death with Christ. And here is what Paul would say to this. If you didn't die with Christ, you don't believe on Christ. Words don't mean much. Words have little value. Who cares about words, right? I believe. Well, everybody I meet on the street in this neighborhood believes. Drunks believe, prostitutes believe. Everybody believes in, in Phillips and Elliott Park neighborhood. They've heard it a thousand times. They know the language. They tell you what you want to hear. 
The issue is not what you can say, and the issue is not the words. The issue is, did you die? Are you dead? That's the issue. How can you who died to sin still live in it? Conversion means death. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. The existence of that day in our history, in our land, is significant, real significant. And the existence of that day in the Church of Jesus Christ is significant. I gave it some thought, and it seems to me that Martin Luther King probably, among all the notable people in the history of America, is the one who was hated most and loved most than anybody that's ever been a leader in this country. The most hatred combined with the most heroic admiration and love. I don't think anybody surpasses him for bringing those two together. His nonviolent approach towards overturning social and legal indignities done to African Americans enraged millions of whites. He was hated by millions. And his heroic stature among blacks and millions of other whites is huge. He was born January 15, hence the week, 1929. And on April 4, 1968, outside room 306 of the Lorraine Motel, in Memphis, Tennessee, at 6 p.m., as he stood by the railing looking out over a dilapidated area just south of Mulberry Street, James Earl Ray took him in the sights of his 30 caliber rifle and blew away the right side of his face and neck. And an hour and five minutes later, he was dead at the St. Joseph's Hospital in Memphis. And Ralph Abernathy was weeping over his friend's face. In Atlanta, an FBI agent said they finally got the SOB. And in Arlington, Texas, as university students watched it on television, they cheered that he was dead. And on the other side, riots flared in 110 cities. 75,000 federal troops patrolled the streets of the cities of this land. 711 fires blazed in Washington, D.C. alone. That was a division. And today, there's a, a day, a Martin Luther King Day, and it signals the division that is still there. Many things have changed. Many good things have changed. And some deep things have not changed. Some deep things have not changed. The Ku Klux Klan has no corner on hate. 
anymore, as though they ever did, I would estimate that probably there are more hate-filled white supremacists in America today than in 1968. Come in various forms. In 1963, you remember when King gave that stirring message from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. In St. Augustine, Florida, the police were routinely and systematically beating peaceful demonstrators and throwing them into jail. They were standing idly by while the Ku Klux Klan was strafing and bombing houses in the black community and while they were randomly firing their shotguns into nightclubs of black people. And the stories that you can read about the abductions and the beatings and the tortures are beyond description. And I'm looking for my magazine. There it is. So I'll spare you the the details of, of those tortures, which every every black person in this room and in our society knows about. But I won't spare you the details of this year, just to illustrate the the fact that some deep things haven't changed. You recognize this pickup truck? First thing I noticed when I uh, got this pickup truck, which is in the 1998 in pictures, is that the tabs are not paid up, which causes me to just reflect as a parenthesis here that little sins lead to big sins. Pay your tabs. Little sins in Washington lead to big sins. Those who are accountable in little things will be accountable in big things. And the big thing is that on June 6th, just outside Jasper, Texas, James Byrd, a black man, 49 years old, had his ankles tied together and chained to the back of his truck and then drove him for two miles until his head came off. That's 1963, six months ago. So some deep things have not changed. And this day, tomorrow, is an occasion for knowing it and doing something about it. Now I'm aware that race relations in America are a much bigger thing than black and white. I know that. It's every color and every shade in between all the colors. All kinds of ethnic identities in this land that need to be wrestled with, dealt with. All kinds of sensitivities and multi-layers of love need to be developed. And I'm aware that the black and white issue is not merely a African-American, Anglo-American issue. Especially in this neighborhood with Thousands of Somali people 
flocking here. Who don't bring any of the 300 year horror that African Americans bring to the table. But unashamedly and unapologetically, I do intend for this service to have a focus on that issue. Because it's unique. In fact, I think we, we, we will really dishonor African Americans and we will minimize the uniqueness of the hundreds of years of issues and pain and injustice that are bearing fruit still to minimize that and just say, oh, every issue is the same issue. Every color has the same issues and every refugee conglomerate has the same issues. They don't. They're different. They're unique. And we, against the backdrop of our history, need to think some unique thoughts and pray some unique prayers and take some unique steps. That's the background. Back to conversion. This superficial, glib notion that to get saved is to make some decision without death. How can you who died to racism still live in it? Meaning you can't. Conversion is of such a magnitude and such a depth and such a supernatural power that change comes into the life. Now, is there a warrant biblically for bringing racism into this context of death and conversion? Now let's go, not to Romans 6 this time, but to Colossians 3. So if you have your Bible still open, Look at it with me, and if you closed it, you might want to open it again. Colossians chapter 3, and I want to read verses 2 and 3 to lift the banner again of what Paul said in Romans 6, 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now notice, he doesn't... He doesn't say, some of you Christians are in the category of those who experience the death. There are no two categories of Christians. Some who've died and some who haven't. You Christians have died or you're not a Christian. Conversion is to die. That's what verse 3 says so plainly. You have died. If you're not dead, you're not one of the you. Now, what does that mean? What am I saying? What is Paul saying? Let me put it in a few sentences like this. In believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... And I say carefully, in believing, not as a result of believing. In 
believing in the spiritual transaction between you and the Almighty Christ, the living Christ, in believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the Holy Spirit is at work uniting you profoundly, supernaturally to the living Christ in a way beyond comprehension. You are united to Christ in that believing such that what is true of Christ is true of you. And his death becomes your death. His judgment becomes your judgment. His life becomes your life. Such that you now say, in union with Jesus, I died. Let's put it another way. The Holy Spirit moves upon you in that union with Jesus Christ in such a way that the life of Christ flows in and begins to transform you. But a decisive work is done. Call it the lopping off of the dragon's head, if you want, of sin. So that the convictions and the values and the impulses and the drives and the priorities that once defined you apart from Christ die. There is a death that happens. Let me read this from Galatians 6.14. Paul says, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. Now there's a description of your conversion. You should be able to say that as a Christian. Conversion is to die with Christ, to be crucified with Christ. But now here he puts it in two sentences. When I was crucified with Christ, when the cross came home to me, when I was united with this dying Savior through faith, the world was crucified to me. What does that mean? I think it means this. All that the world was to Paul before he met Christ died when he met Christ. What the world meant to Paul before he met Christ died when he met Christ. And then he says it another way. He says, I was crucified to the world, which means the old Paul that loved the world, lived on the world, drew its strength from the world, wanted the approval of the world. That old Paul, when it came face to face with Jesus Christ, the glorious, all attractive, all satisfying Son of God, that old Paul died. That's conversion. That's becoming a Christian. And nothing less than that. If you didn't die, you didn't believe. If there was no union with Christ, such that a life began to flow into you, and a life began to drain out of you, you didn't become a Christian. There are many hypocrites in the world who think they're Christians. Because they've been so badly taught. It's real scary. That's why Jesus spoke about many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, didn't we do this or that? And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. 
The Bible is full of warnings about people who were badly taught and did not realize what it meant to become a Christian. Now I need to say something encouraging here about this because the way I've said it so far, which is fully biblical, is incomplete and could leave you with the impression that to become a Christian is to become perfect instantaneously. Okay, my old sinful self died, a new John Piper came into being, so no more sin, right? Now the reason we know that's not right is because in this context, indeed in all the contexts, the context of Romans, the context here, the context in Ephesians, every place this is talked about, it becomes very plain that something else is happening. Look at verse 5. Colossians 3, 5. Here's the therefore that follows from this decisive execution of my old self in union with Jesus on the cross. Therefore, consider... This is now the New American Standard. It's not real literal. I'm going to give you a literal rendering. But let me read this first. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Literally, it is, therefore, put to death your members on the earth. Put them to death. This is a command rooted in what has already happened in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. You see verse 3? You have died. We let that stand, right? We don't shake that up and say, oh, that can't mean that. And then we come to verse 5 and it says, put yourself to death. Now, the mystery of the Christian life here is that a decisive, once-for-all, glorious, supernatural, unchangeable reality has happened in the heart of every true believer. And the way the Christian life is now lived and authenticated is by reckoning ourselves dead, putting ourselves to death, and affirming that truth, standing on it, embracing it, and walking in the power of it. Now, why do I think we do that imperfectly? I mean, couldn't that be true and still believe in perfectionism? No, because look at verses 9 and 10. Let's just take the issue of lying. Let's use lying. Before we get to racism in verse 11, let's take lying just because it's here. Have you lied to anybody this week? And don't give me that political mumbo-jumbo. No, I didn't lie. I just creatively misstated the truth so that they would think other than reality. We don't lie anymore in America. We just misstate or say things creatively enough so that others think what is not so. Not our problem that they're thinking what is not so because we didn't give a bald lie. Well, forget that and just don't lie. Just don't do that. Be people of absolute integrity. You got a job interview tomorrow? Don't raise your hand. Tell the truth. Risk your job and trust future grace. God will love you for it. He'll bless you for it. Be truthful people. Let's read about lying here, verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices 
and have put on the new self which is being renewed to a knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now ponder that for a minute. This is new imagery, almost. Right? We don't have death here, quite. We have take off and put on. But really, the reality is the same, and really what's being taken off is a corpse. And what's being put on is a new being that was created. You see that in verse 10? Somebody has been created here at the end of verse 10. And we are being renewed. Now, that's where I get the idea of process and imperfection. We are being renewed to a knowledge according to the image of the one who created this new person. Now, let's step back and get the picture here. We have died, and we must now reckon ourselves dead, put our members to death, die hands when you're tempted to steal, die tongue when you're tempted to lie, die sexual organs when you're tempted to fornicate, die ear when you're tempted to listen to gossip, die, die, die. We, we put ourselves to death out of the strength of this old reality, which is still new, namely, we have died. But now we hear in verse 10 that something else happened there. Something was created. A new self, a new person was created when the old one died. And here we are told to, to put it on. You see that at the beginning of verse 10? Put on. We have put on the new self and we must go on putting it on. You can see that down in verse 12. I wasn't going to go as far as verse 12, but if you want to see the, the imperative of the put on, you can drop down to see it in verse 12. In between, and as part of the process, we are being renewed. So, John Piper died. And John Piper was given a new identity, and a new being was brought into life, and it was the believing John Piper. He was six years old. A lot of sin under the bridge between 6 and 53. A lot of sin. But I do believe it was real. I do believe it was real. And that progressively, mercifully, God has enlarged my capacity to put to death the deeds of the body and to put on the new man of love and worship and humility and tenderness and stumble my way along towards the fullness of Christ. Race. Verse 11. Not lying any longer now, but racism. Look at it. The verse begins with some italics in the NASB. And I wonder if that's the way it should be handled. In the Greek, the verse begins with where. So it goes like this. The thought is this. You've died. You've been created anew. You should go on now reckoning yourselves dead and putting on the new. And where this is true. Where this is true in the heart. Where this is true in a church. 
There is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now that was an absolutely staggering statement in Jesus' day, as I think it is today. No Greek and Jew, ethnicity, religion, culture divided these two groups. All the monotheism among the Jews, all the celebrations of their peculiar holidays, all their diet restrictions, all their circumcision, all their peculiar gatherings, all their looks separated them from these Greeks. They looked different. They ate different. They didn't keep any of the holy days. They didn't have one God. They had lots of gods and some no gods. And now, if you die and Christ lives in you, there's no Greek and Jew. This grand canyon of separation and hostility. Bridges go over it. You go down and meet at the river in the bottom of it. You swing on vines if you have to across it. Something to get over or to meet. Barbarians and Scythians, who are they? Well, the Greeks and the Romans viewed everybody outside as barbarians. The word is built on the, it's a kind of uh, word that, that is, uh, has the sounds in it of the language. They thought everybody just went blah, 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 blah. They didn't, they heard these foreign languages and they said, that's just barbarian. They don't know how to speak good Latin or good Greek. So they made up a word for those kinds of people. People who in their language, in their habits, their culture are unrefined and not like us. And the Scythians were the worst of the lot up there around the Black Sea, the lowest of the low. And if you die with Christ and you live and you put to death the old self, barbarians and Scythians are folded into your life without any hatred or slurs or ugliness or mean-spiritedness. Slave and free, the deepest class distinctions there were, deeper than anything we know in America today. Slave and free. And Paul didn't attack it directly. He simply undermined it by saying there aren't any slave and free in the church. You sit there, master, and you sit there, slave, and I have a new word for you. It's called brother. And sister. And once you lay that down, like you did in Philemon with Onesimus and Philemon, once you lay that down and say, if you two are dead, and Christ is all and in all for you, then brother and sister are your names. And there's no longer the hostility and the looking down your nose and the fear and the threatening that will go on. So the last word we look at this morning is Christ is all and in all. We've seen no Greek and Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But here's the alternative. Here's the death knell of racism. Christ is all and in all. Let's just take them one at a time. Christ is in all. 
When I was in college and I was asked, what's your life verse? I would regularly say Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Now, do you hear that? Dead. Dead. A death has happened. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. What are the next two words? In me. Relate that here now. Christ is in all. Now, in the context of death, that's the way I interpret those words. If you have died with Christ, then you can say, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the, the life that I now live, the new I, the new I of faith, the new I of humility, the new I of love, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the key to triumphing over class, ethnic, culture, distinctions in the church is for everyone to so die that Christ moves in and lives in us. Galatians 2.20, Colossians 3.11 at the end. Christ is in all. If you love that idea, that is, if you love the reality of Christ being in you, and you cherish Christ being in you, can there come out of you racial slurs? Or must you, at that moment, be living a life of absolute contradiction? The first half of the phrase says, Christ is all. Christ is all. Here's the death knell of racism. Why do we despise? Why do we hate and shun and avoid and distort and slur? Why? Is it not because we're weak and fearful and insecure and proud and angry and we don't have any peace inside and our lives are not full of love? Can we be mean-spirited and hateful and disparaging of others and other races when Christ is all to us? I don't think we can. And so, I think the words that you want to come to your mind right now to give expression to your longing to be freed from all kinds of attitudes and behaviors that are so demeaning. The words are words like Psalm 16, 2. Preserve me, O God, for in thee I take refuge. I say to the Lord, Thou art my Lord. I have no good apart from thee. Do you hear? Christ is all in those words. Christ is all. I have no good apart from thee. Or Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. Do you hear? Christ is all. Christ is all. On earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Where that's being spoken and meant, can you follow it with some ugly, 
racial slur or attitude or demeaning attitude. I don't think so. Or it can be expressed with that old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy. Finish it, my. Not many of you know it. My all. It's an old one. My all. My all. Jesus is all the world to me. Jesus is all the world to me. I don't need to be elevated in some way, ethnically or educationally or culturally. I don't need to put anybody else down in order to make myself feel a little more significant or a little more secure or a little more superior. Why? Jesus is all the world to me. To have Jesus is to have everything. And so, as we close, oh, let us pray that Bethlehem would be a church. Here we are now, downtown church in the midst of an incredibly diverse culture. Every culture, every color represented all around us here. And we're not as representative as we could be and should be. And if God would come on us in these ways, would it not be then said of us, no Jew and Gentile there, no circumcised and uncircumcised there, no barbarian and Scythian there, no slave and free there, no black, white, brown, red there, all shades in between, no labor and management there, no professions and tradesmen there. But Christ is all at Bethlehem. Christ is all and in all.